Hello, hello. This is episode three of Alta Podcast. My name is Lydia Perovich. I have a great guest today. She is Toronto-based composer Cecilia Livingston, and she is working on an opera about the doomed Franklin expedition to map out the Northwest Passage. And the opera will be produced by Opera 5 here in Toronto. And Cecilia has already done a million interesting things at her young age. But I started off by asking her about what it was like to be mentored by Steve Reich. Let me ask you first about your work with Stephen Reich. Well, I've been lucky to work with him twice. First time was at um, Bang on a Can Summer Festival, that was in 2014. And then he was the like, uh, guest mentor composer for Soundstream's Emerging Composer Workshop in the spring of 2016. And it, it was really interesting to work with him in sort of two different environments. The second one being really intimate, it was just the selected participants and him for hours at a time and we got a, a real chance to just talk to him composer to composer in a really intimate way that was and, and to hear a lot about his process which is absolutely fascinating to hear what intrigued you about it well it was i mean i'm always really reassured to hear about composers facing the same challenges of the blank page <laughs> every morning and working through you know working through the feeling that okay what I've done is is not great but I'm going to work with it I'm going to make it better or I'm going to chuck this and start again um, what software they use all this kind of gearhead <laughs> composer side of things and it's, it's really easy I think with a composer who is that legend is a living legend I think it's easy to forget that that's a, a human being an artist who, who struggles and works in many of the same ways that emerging composers are struggling and working and drafting and redrafting and are frustrated and dissatisfied and overjoyed with different steps in the process. And that, that was truly heartening to see that a very long and very successful career like that often looks day to day the same as many of ours. This usual self-doubt and all that. Exactly. So you first, the first th you, that was the Bang on a Can Summer Music Festival and then the second one was uh, Sound Streams, right? Yeah, that's right. So that's basically the same thing, composer mentorship. Um. Yeah, at Bang on Can, he was the guest, a uh, guest composer for the whole festival. So he also worked with performers who were putting on his pieces for their marathon concert at the end. Uh, Soundstreams was also associated with a huge concert at Massey Hall, um, but we had m a little bit more one-on-one -on -one or a small group on one time with him uh, at Soundstreams, which was really. Uh, made it quite a different experience because it was just much more intimate. What does a composer say to another composer? <laughs> I had this I'm conversation sure yesterday. <laughs> I'm sure they probably don't look at the score and say, oh, this should be changed. It's not that kind of thing, right? Well, it depends. I mean, in a, I think it depends what sort of structure of that conversation is. I mean, in that kind of workshop situation where there is a guest, usually quite a prominent figure, there's often a sort of awkward uh, show and tell that starts everything off. You know, everyone shares scores and plays recordings and says how bad they think the recording is. And, and this is, there's a sort of a, a getting to know you moment like that. And sometimes people can be quite critical in that 
uh, situation. Invariably, technology fails, things don't play back, et cetera, et cetera, which is just gloriously awkward and uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, and sometimes, though, that can be quite glacial, and, and it really moves into much more of a conversation about you know, process or aesthetic or philosophy or why it is we do what we do. Um, I certainly find with my peer composers, I've had all kinds of conversations, and sometimes we just don't talk about music at all. Instead, what do you do? Eat. <laughs> <laughs> talk about books, TV, plays we've gone to. Sometimes it's a relief to just be with somebody who is coming at the world in a similar way, but not have to discuss that. I think that can be really, can create, it's an important sense of community to have, that you're not always sort of being a composer with other composers, that you're just being a human being with other artists. Do you think, from your perspective, um, there are schools, or a certain kind of a school of aesthetic approach would measure composers in that school? Are they kind of divisions like along those lines? I know, for example, some European, younger European composers that I uh, mm -hmm. came across uh, basically don't like anything coming from the US. Yes, um, I've run into that too. And, <laughs> and a lot of them, some, some Canada, Canada I suppose too, but a lot of them see the, their job as reinventing music. Like from second Viennese school on, they see that's their task. We have to reinvent the whole language, and unless you have something new to say, don't even bother. Yeah, I've, I've certainly run into that attitude. Um, I've had people um, express profound disgust with the fact that I like major chords sometimes. Um, <laughs> a, a whiff of, of a harmonic progression can be a scandalous thing in the right So circle. that's true, there is snobbery around har 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 uh, major yeah, really keys is. and stuff, tonality. There really is. And, and, I, and, you know, minimalism has been a huge influence on me, um, and I have used repeating patterns as structural devices and I've had people criticize that. Um, and I've also run into some really interesting preconceptions around the singing voice. Um, I'm always interested by how often other composers don't like the sound of the operatically trained classical singing voice. And I find that very peculiar because I really do like it. Um, but often in that kind of show-and-tell situation, you know, where we're sitting around and sharing work with one another, the feedback that I get most often is, well, why, you know, why not write for an early music voice? Or why not have written this for countertenor instead of a female soprano? Or, you know, don't you hate all this vibrato? It's really shocking how often that comes up, actually. And, and I find that disconcerting because I, I quite like those things. Where does this, why does that come from? I mean, there's probably some sort of not very pleasant speculation I could throw out there. But I think that there... I think there are some, probably some troubling associations between opera and the voice that we, the, the sort of full vibrato voice that we associate with opera and sort of maybe a snobbery about melodrama <laughs> that um, you know, maybe makes some people uncomfortable when their musical and aesthetic goals have to do with you know abstraction or you know the purity of idea and things like story drama the emotion of a character they feel might clutter 
or interfere with what they would like to be a, a purely musical experience. Mm. Maybe that, but I'm speculating. Uh, I usually just say, well, that's interesting. I did consider it. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, wonder, I think sometimes also it's easy to take a stance that might be harsher than what you really feel. And you know, I get mad at 19th century Aubrey sometimes, and sometimes it's just ridiculous. <laughs> There's no... Make that most of the time. <laughs> There's no getting away from that. But it's kind of fabulous in its ridiculousness. And I, if I can just get past that, you know, occasional frustration, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing to revel in and, and a very valuable legacy. And in my part of the world, very much alive. Do you consider yourself an operatic composer in addition to just a composer? I think so. Um, I've thought about that a lot, actually. I certainly think of myself as a composer for voice, and I can't get away from the fact that there is something really dramatic in the music that I write, and that it really yearns to be theatrical. And that I'm really interested in character. And to me, all of those things point towards opera. Writing opera has been the most joyous experience of my entire creative life. Every time I get to work with story and character and drama and emotion and music on that larger scale, I'm, I'm just completely overjoyed. And I think in, you know, in the interview that you did in Whole Note earlier this year, Lindsay said that she felt like uh, those, those art songs of mine that she was singing were like little operas, they were like little opera scenes. And that's certainly unconsciously how I think about them. I was actually really chuffed <laughs> to, to see that, that she too picked up on that, because that's how I think about them when I'm writing them. So how is it, uh, the, how is it your first full-length opera going? At one point, oh, I'm at the beginning. <laughs> um, the libretto is basically nearly finished. Um, cool. uh, it's by Duncan McFarlane, with whom I've written before. Um, we did Mask of the Red Death with Opera Five, and we've also he was a librettist fellow with me at American Opera Projects, so we've worked together many times. We're also married, which is helpful. <laughs> It makes for a more uh, free-flowing editorial. <laughs> That's a funny footnote. By the way, well, I mean that comes with challenges too, but uh, it certainly means that I think we can have a lot more honest conversations about what it is that you know we see as problems and how we're going to fix them. And you know, there's maybe a bit less. Um, we're, we're more on the same wavelength, I think. Um, and this, the idea for this opera was something that we developed together um, over, it's been a couple of years now that we've been talking about it. So I'm sort of standing on the threshold of putting the first notes down on paper slash into a sequencer. And that's terrifying, but very exciting. What's a sequencer? Um, so like a digital, like an audio workflow that lets you work directly with sound, with sound samples, with synthetic instruments, MIDI, and means that you don't have to create your music, you know, with a, a score or notation as your first step. I kind of 
think about it as the difference between typing into Microsoft Word and being able to work directly with the sound of the spoken word for, say, you're writing a speech. So you don't have to deal with that interface of notation, unless you choose to. How, how does it record a sound? Well, you can either use sound samples that you record, and go out into the field, make your own field recordings, and then manipulate them. Um, there also are sample libraries for synthetic instruments. So you might have a set of samples for your clarinet sound that you're going to use in this particular piece for clarinet, and then you can use each of those pre-recorded notes and manipulate them. So it's as though you were working with a clarinetist in your computer. And you can hear the playback of that as well. So you kind of experiment with or orchestration before you actually have the score. Exactly. And that can be, I was actually talking to a composer friend about this yesterday. That That is a very different way to think about creating music if you're very used to, you know, thinking about bar lines and treble clefs and all of that right off the top. But it can also be really liberating. Even uh, particularly for me, it's it's much more liberating rhythmically. It helps me to get out of the kind of you know, 4-4 four, four or 6-8 grid of notated music that can be hard to break away from. Um, so I, I do find that the more I work just directly with sound, the more fluidity my creative process seems to have. It lets me focus more on my ears and means that I can be more responsive to what I hear and manipulate and tweak things more immediately, you know, if you think, okay, I want this to be faster. You don't necessarily have to take that little bit of music and try it out as 16th notes, and then try it out as 32nd notes, and then try it out as, you know, quintuplet this or septuplet that. You can just work directly with that little bit of either the sound file or the MIDI audio and stretch it and manipulate it to fit what you want to hear, and then worry about how you're going to write it down to communicate it to a performer. So you get the sound that you want first to the text that you have, or independent? Yeah, working with the text that I have. So for example, the um, uh, project that I did just at the end of the summer for Nuit Blanche was for uh, three singers and a spoken word poet. This was with Madeline Coe, it was at Nuit Blanche. And I'm not three singers, <laughs> but with my microphone I can be. So I just recorded myself experimenting with what I wanted to hear those singers sing eventually and was able to multi-track myself and pull these sound files that I made of myself <laughs> all over the place until I got the kind of choral effect that I wanted. And then I thought about how to write it down so that the singers would know what it was that I had in mind. And that way, of course, you don't end up with the crazy thing for a singer. That they cannot sing. Yeah, exactly, because I was singing it, and I am no trained singer. And I always figure if I can kind of do it, probably somebody who's a pro can really do it. What attracted you to this topic? Oh, just summarize it for me. I know it's probably not easy. <laughs> so the opera is, uh, it's, the plan is that it will be 90 minutes. Uh, it's for six singers and percussion quartet. And it's about the story of the Franklin expedition to the Arctic in 1845. John Franklin left England with his crew. He had uh, 129 crew members. And they struck out to the Canadian Arctic to see if they could find the Northwest Passage. And their ships became trapped in the ice. And the expedition, for a long time, just disappeared. 
And when I was a little girl, my dad went through a period of fascination with uh, Shackleton and Antarctic exploration. And I remember him reading me, oh, it must have been Shackleton's letters or diaries. I can't remember now. But I remember him reading aloud to me from that. And I found it at the time terrifying, this idea of being stranded and in very dangerous situations in very unfamiliar climate for those explorers. And then I didn't think about that for a long time. <laughs> and then uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Duncan said to me, gosh, you know, the Franklin story would make a great opera. <laughs> and I thought, yes, he's right. And it just brought back all of the memories of the stories and things that my dad had read to me and played in beautifully to my current obsession at the time with the music of John Luther Adams, who of course lives and works in Alaska. And beautifully, you know, beautiful synchronicity, um, I think a year and then two years after Duncan and I started talking about this, the wrecks of the Terror and the Erebus, Franklin's two ships, were discovered. So it just seemed like, you know, everything was coming together. <laughs> it was just the right time. I'd worked with Torque before. I love the way that they perform. It's so theatrical. And I had seen years ago, um, they did a almost staged performance of Strange and Sacred Noise by John Luther Adams. And I remember sitting in their performance space and thinking, these guys need to be in an opera. This is so perfect. So this just all came together. Um, it was the, the right people and the, and the right story and I think the right instrumentation and at the right time. So there won't be strings, there won't be just, just percussion. Just percussion. Now do you, do you know now, do you want to do a narrative? So we have, I'm really interested in, in narrative in opera and I'm realizing that I'm becoming increasingly drawn to, to experimenting with narrative in opera. I, th I don't know, in, as an audience member I can become frustrated if there's too much play with the way that narrative unfolds. So I'm very conscious of that. But I also think we've had a lot of A to B stories. <laughs> there's also such a thing as too little. There's such a thing as too little. And I loved that um, article that Anne Majette wrote in the Washington Post last summer about, you know, why, why is opera not experimenting with the way that it tells stories in, in the same ways that you know, television is, for example. And I think you know we've got audiences who are really comfortable with sophisticated storytelling. And Opera could go, I think, like her, a lot further in that direction. So we're interweaving two stories in our opera, um, the 1845, except two years after that, narrative of, of that disappearance of that expedition. We're looking at the last days of Franklin and Crozier on the ice. And then we're interweaving that with a, a much later expedition um, by Rasmussen and his um, companion Matthiessen, who came from Greenland, they were um, explorers, came from Greenland in the 1920s, um, to in part see if they could find what happened with the expedition, uh, but he was also just an explorer doing his own thing. So we've inter sort of interwoven those two stories and it becomes in many ways kind of a ghost story as a result. Does the second crew discover 
No, they didn't. What um, Rasmussen, though, made an incredibly important contribution in um, recording and, and kind of re-establishing some of the Inuit oral histories around the Franklin disappearance and sort of bringing that testimony back into the public record and mm -hmm. giving it much greater credibility. So, yeah, he played a very important role in that part. When was, when was the second one? Uh, 1923. So 20th century. Yeah. So it's an interesting, I think, counterpoint. We've got you know, two men in the first story and two men in the second story that we've chosen to focus on, but in very different eras with very different goals and very different knowledge of that part of the world. Do you um, maybe want to cast non-gender specific? Like, do, are there any women singing men, or is it an all-male <laughs> cast? So right now we've got, yeah, <laughs> that's a tricky question actually, because I think that, you know, being putting on my composer hat for a moment, restricting vocal range to, you know, that sort of lower registers can be quite fatiguing to the ear because we just get a lot of sort of unburied low singing. So that was a concern of mine right from the get-go. And also as a female composer, I would love to have some female singers involved. Um, so we ended up with, yes, four male characters, um, although one of them will be a countertenor. And then we have two female singers, uh, soprano and mezzo, who are going to act as kind of a Greek chorus, commenting on the action, um, realizing or, or bringing to musical life some, you know, some of these men's dreams and nightmares as they think about their loved ones, for example. And they also come to represent some of the natural world around them as well. And uh, those Inuit voices, I guess you're, you're fine way to somehow so I am, I have, I do not have indigenous background myself, and I would be completely uncomfortable <laughs> trying or, or attempting somehow to give voice to that experience. I think that would not be appropriate at all. So our, uh, we, we right now are developing a partnership format. So the opera would be presented after a presentation from an Inuit arts organization, which gives an opportunity, I think, for our audiences to hear about those events and experiences from the Inuit themselves through their own artistic representation. Now, what do, what do you think motivated these people? Like, it's such an incredible <laughs> story. Yeah. There's basically going into nothingness, this ice, darkness, and nothingness. It can be greed as, as the moment. There's something, they're so insanely brave. Like, no jeep. I mean, compare, compare, <laughs> no I mean, compare <laughs> them to us. Like, we whinge at the minor inconvenience. Yeah, I mean, I was complaining about the snow on my way over here. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, disconnect is at the forefront of my mind. Yeah, I mean, certainly for uh, you know European explorers to whom that must have seemed like a great stretch of emptiness. I mean, certainly that wouldn't be the attitude of, of the people who lived there. Of course, populated, yeah. yeah. Um, but to those explorers, it must have seemed incredibly hostile territory, a uh, hostile climate. And one of the things I'm really looking forward to in writing this opera is to try to get in to the mind space of these explorers and imagine what kind of courage 
they must have had to go out on this I mean, really crazy expedition uh, that a lot of people advise them not to go on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and to sort of fly in the face of the kind of caution and, you know, stay close to your hearth and that kind of thing that might guide the more sensible. And I also think a lot about, I mean, it's one thing to sort of ride the adrenaline and excitement of heading out on such an adventure, and I think it must have been a very, there must have been quite an, uh, a, an, a horrifying realization, a moment when it, each man admitted to himself that this was going to be the end. I find that very difficult to imagine, and, and entering that emotional territory is daunting, I think, for a writer and for a composer. But it's a really important story that I think opera, music, can do some powerful things to suggest. And it almost it almost requires Beckett. Like you're <laughs> like it's four of you in a small like in close quarters, and you're dying, yeah. and there's nothing else happening. And talk, of course. You, I'm happen. sure the, the language is still being created. I'm sure. But what do you say to one another under those circumstances? I mean, how do you encourage one another? What of the person who won't be encouraged? Um, you know, how do you look at each other and look in one another's eyes and see that truth reflected back at you, and and yet give comfort and be kind. I mean, we, there is, there's strong, compelling evidence that um, the expedition ended in cannibalism. How did those decisions get made? And what kind of, what kind of headspace makes that not only necessary, but something one can do? I mean, I should probably know more about this, but did they ever get in touch with the local Inuit uh, in, in their journeys? There were a couple of encounters, and you'd be better, I mean, Duncan is the person who, who really has all of this oh, history in the hand, yeah, but sort of the, the most condensed version might be <laughs> that the expedition didn't, um, you know, do, didn't necessarily have enough knowledge or know to ask for the knowledge they would have needed to not make the fatal decisions that they made. So to their own detriment they didn't uh, yeah. ask? I mean, my understanding is that there were a couple of encounters, but the British explorers didn't, didn't call on the help of the Inuit, uh, didn't um, sort of you know, ask for the kind of assistance that, that might have saved their lives. But I guess perhaps they were convinced in a moment of tragic hubris that they knew better and knew best. And a lot of other explorers did actually communicate with the indigenous population. Yeah, yeah. and Rasmussen himself was uh, part was part Inuit. Um, in being from Greenland, he, he was uh, part was himself a Greenland Inuit, Danish Kalalit, uh, from Greenland, and did, as I said before, this really important work of restoring some of the Inuit's oral history to the record. I wanted to ask you, you did one of the sesquies, right? Oh, yes I did, that's right. What do you think, um, 
about that whole project? I mean, there's been some criticism that com composite, like three minute long things. Two minute long. <laughs> are not here to last. That basically the reason behind is just to have a whole bunch of people composing for money. But do you think this is going to be any lasting impact? I think that has yet to be seen. Um, I think we could be, you know, pessimistic or optimistic. So, as one of the composers who was involved, I was delighted to have the opportunity, and that probably puts me in a pretty biased position for. <laughs> and it's a bit big stonking orchestra too. Exactly. I mean, just um, to have been, you know, co-commissioned by one of my absolute favorite ensembles in the country, the Kingston Symphony. I've worked with them a couple of times now, and I just adore them. So that was a tremendous compliment. And then the opportunity to uh, you know, work with the TSO and share a piece of my music with their audience, I mean, that's a huge deal. <laughs> and I found it really exciting, a great learning opportunity you know, for an emerging composer. Um, and that's a piece I'm really proud to have in my own portfolio. As to what will happen with you know, the products of that project, on a larger scale over the years, well, that remains to be seen. I mean, the ones that I've heard have been so different, and some of them, you know, such um, personal takes on what a fanfare is, mm. that I don't, I don't get the sense that we're going to have, you know, da 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 dum over and over Uniform. and over and yeah, over yeah, again. Yeah. Although yeah, I did yeah. use that figure in mind, so. <laughs> I wanted to go back a little bit to what we talked about um, the schools of thoughts, the aesthetic mm. preferences, the maybe it's the wrong word, but cliques in contemporary music, the power in contemporary music. I remember I was asked once to give a talk. I can't remember what the subject of the talk was actually. But somebody said, What is it like to be a female composer? And I said, Well I don't really think about that, but I can tell you what it's like to be a composer. composer. Yeah. yeah. And I'm I think it could be dangerous for me, as an artist, I'm sure one, you know, other female composers will say differently, but for me, I don't want to start thinking too much about whether or not my music is female or feminine or male or masculine or somewhere in between. I just want it to do whatever it needs to do. And I think I'm helped in, in focusing in that way a lot by working with words, which bring with them different demands of structure and musical realization. Um, I've always found that quite a tremendous relief, actually, that the words are going to, the text is going to tell me some of the things that it needs to do. And that helps me get out of my own head in some interesting and very helpful ways. I find whenever I'm going through, you know, a period of challenge creatively that just doing something simple like writing a song um, is enormously restorative of that kind of intuitive musical response. What about ideology? Um, what about ideology? <laughs> <laughs> Would you say your music has it automatically, whatever you do? I'm getting up, that's why my sound is so crappy. To get this book off the shelf, so anyway, this is a collective bio of the Frankfurt School, mm. and there's a lot of Adorno in there. And for ah. example, he argued, whatever <laughs> you do musically, it's ideological, automatically. Mm. Well, I'm going to duck this question pretty hard. 
<laughs> but you wouldn't, for example, agree unless you specifically put front and center resistance to to uh, some of the conditions in our society that you're pro uh, inactivity, pro lulling people in, pro entertainment, pro unconscious listener. I think I'm pro communication, and I think I'm. I really want to offer a listener the opportunity to have some kind of experience that is important to him or her. And it doesn't always necessarily have to be like serious. It can be a, a, an experience of pleasure, or it can be an opportunity for them to think about some of the challenges in their own lives, about what it is to be a human being. And I really, I really look at art more broadly that way, that it, it's, it's a conversation about what it is to be a human being. However, <laughs> I had this, I mentioned earlier, this experience of writing the piece for the, the for Nuit Blanche, for three singers and, and spoken word poem. And that wasn't uh, an overtly political uh, installation piece by a collective that has a, a clear feminist stance that is really interested in activism and in asking questions and, and using art to do those things and working with a, a poet who again has been very upfront about sharing her experience of being an immigrant to this country. Um, I was surprised in some ways that they approached me because I had never done a project like that before where I had you know, taken a particular political position. But in a lot of ways, I think the reason that it really worked for me, and I'm incredibly proud of what we created, I just looked at her words as words and what did they need musically around them and let myself respond to them as an artist. And then I realized afterwards that, yeah, actually we did create this piece that was you know, very much about women's experience, about women's frustrations. And we had had huge, you know, long, deep conversations about those things, but I kind of had to absorb all of that and then sort of put it aside in a funny way and just let myself respond to what was before me in her voice, because I was working with an audio recording of this poet, Nessie Mascari, and just let myself respond. And I wasn't at that point being conscious in a political or ideological way. I, I think I was being what I would call a composer. And of course the Franklin Opera would probably be read politically. I'm sure it will be. And I'm sure some people are going to think it's a bit of a headline grab. <laughs> I've already had one person say, well that's timely. And it is timely. But you know, why not have why not build art around things that are unfolding in our own time? You know, do we have to, you know, wait a polite 200 years before we say something, you know, about what that experience must have been like? I mean, in many ways we've already been waiting, but this is back in front of, of the public consciousness. There's tremendous interest in it, so maybe it's time to ask some questions about what that must have been like. And it's, in, in a way, it's doing an opera about the Franklin Exhibition, I think, I didn't see it, of course, I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's in a way saying, yes, it was worth it. 
like this, like whatever you could could have contributed to the formation of this country was definitely worth it. And as an immigrant to this country, I think it's important to hear. We don't really frequently hear that as much. Yeah, it's a sort of episode of history that I think until the rediscovery of the wrecks wasn't often talked about anymore. And now suddenly, I mean, there's an article on the CBC News website about once a week, it would seem. That seems to be something that's very interesting to us again now. And maybe we're mythologizing it as yeah, well. I, I know we the previous uh, previous prime minister also milked it quite a bit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm not exactly correct in saying what well, we're not really. But I think, yeah, there is an, an interest, I think, now, particularly, in exactly what you mentioned earlier, you know, the idea of engaging with landscape in that way is something that not that many of us in urban centers have mm. had the chance to experience. And I think it really provokes a lot of imaginative questions about what that must have been like. But do you think it was nation building? Well, I mean, certainly it seems to have come out of, and again, I'm speculating, but out of a sort of particular British adventuring colonial spirit, um, alive and well at that time. But also, I'm sure, you know, on an individual basis, uh, a sense of adventure, a need to get paid, <laughs> and make a living, and support families, and, and, you know, very ordinary and pedestrian reasons that, you know, people do long-distance relationships and work on other sides of countries. But, I mean, that's quite a challenge to say, okay, I'm going north, I'm not going to the Caribbean. <laughs> oh, well, the sissies are going to go to the Caribbean, I'm going north. Oh, madness. Yeah, when I, um, I really get, um, I was lucky when I was in England to go to the exhibit of artifacts from the discovery of the wrecks at the Maritime Museum in Greenwich. And to... When was this? I uh, went in July of this summer. It ran from... A January to July, and I can't exactly remember now. Um, but this exhibit brought over a number of these artifacts, and sort of there they were displayed in, in things like pocket watches and leather boots. I mean, leather boots, I mean, they're so useless. There, there, you know, there's, no, there's no hope in boots like that. Awesome. You know, she said, taking off her, you know, thickly soled boots with fur lining. There's just a sort of a, a very human fallibility about those objects, which I find really, really haunts my mind. And I, I think as soon as people start thinking of these explorers as, as ordinary human beings, what they experienced becomes both imaginable and unimaginable. And we were joking earlier, but with the snow howling around us and slipping on the ice, that is a little bit of a reminder of how comfortable our lives are in this city in a day-to-day -day way. And they could be very different. I can't wait to hear that and see it. When is it going to premiere again? Uh, in May, in May 2019 here in Toronto will be the Canadian premiere with Opera 5 and Torque Percussion co-producing it. Do you have the um, director? We're working out a director. So details on that TBA. <laughs> and um, casting. As well. And casting, yeah, again, we've got some ideas, but I won't blab. <laughs> now, how big is it in terms of 
budget, I suppose. Right now, I'm only looking at what I need to write the score. So when we get to the production stage of things, Opera 5 and Tour, and then the company take Exactly, okay. running that, which is good because I'm a composer and not the best at that sort of thing. <laughs> Very last question. Um, what composers do you love? Oh, the hardest and the best question. Uh, it changes. Um, but I think I love Bach, I love Debussy, I love Steve Reich's music. Music for 18 musicians would probably be my one piece of music that I had to take to the desert island. <laughs> I love John Luther Adams' music. I think that Nixon in China is one of the most extraordinary pieces of theater I've ever seen. Seriously? Yeah. You don't find it repetitive? I do not find it repetitive. <laughs> <laughs> I find it extraordinarily profound and a masterful engagement with one of the most complex pieces of poetry I think our, our recent decades have offered to us. I know she published her librettos as a book recently. Yes, she did, with a, a, a really interesting foreword by James Webster, if I'm remembering correctly. So she's a priest now, Alice Gooden. Yes. Anything else? I derailed your list. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also have a lot of time for a lot of really great pop music. <laughs> I've been a longtime Radiohead fan. Um, I really like the beta band. And yeah, I have a huge soft spot for Katy Perry. <laughs> Probably won't work its way into the opera in, in quite that way, but I like to keep open ears. <laughs> what about living contemporary composers? Hmm. Other the Rush Wars. And and John Luther and jo you did mention a few. I did mention a few. I think Julia Wolfe's music is very interesting. She has a piece for string orchestra called Cruel Sister, which made a tremendous impact on me when I heard it first. Um, I was lucky to hear it live for the first time. And I found it really compelling because it is both very feminine to me and yet has a kind of muscular insistence on its own dramatic structure that a lot of people might say, and I would disagree with them, was unfeminine. And I, I tremendously admire the way that she is a female composer in our world and writes music that seems to be both, to, to be all things. And I think that uh, Julia Wolfe has made a really interesting career of being a female composer whose music is exactly what it needs to be. Sometimes a female, quote-unquote, female composer would put her sex exactly front and center. Yeah, so I, yeah. So I can't ex to say this doesn't, this doesn't matter is to be, to be deceitful, so let's just, let's just be very specific. A female voice, or angry, angry female voices, for the Kate Soper, for example. Mm, is another good example. Do you know this essay by Sarah Kirkland Snyder on the music box that came out a while ago about... It was about her experience as a young woman composer. I think I did read that. Was it yeah. in Vay Magazine or somewhere like that? I think it might have been on New Music Box. 
Uh, she basically says, well, this is how men mentor men, and this yeah. is how there's no room for us. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and this is how I feel about being told my music is feminine. <laughs> that too! Yeah, which I found really Candy interesting. Candy floss and merry-go-round. Thank you, yes. that's it, yes. <laughs> it's the reception. Title. Reception matters too. Yeah, and, and I think that's critics... what I've been driving at. Yeah, is how is music perceived, regardless of what, you know, we think about it when we create it, but how is it perceived, how is it labeled? Should it be labeled? And of course, critics, for often female composers, use feminine adjectives. Yes. Uh, comparisons. This is so wonderful. Thank you. Let me stop Hope the recording. I said something useful. Absolutely. <laughs>